The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, the author Richard Powers once said of his fellow novelist Don DeLillo that he, quote, employs a brilliant palette of estrangement. The prose swells with weird, discontinuous wormholes of thought, chanted trademark trinities, exquisite abandoned corpses, sudden cut-ins, floating particles of voice, whatever comes after free indirect discourse, chains of causality and cross-purposed connection with random bits elided or dropped or injected suddenly from another train of thought. Every non-sequitur and attention deficit articulates a little death, but through the narrative aporia and amnesiac gaps, Words push forward, words as near palpable things, and things as facts and passions. End quote. Wow. And one more to wet your listening whistle. Crystal Albert said, quote, No writer of his era, not Pynchon, not Morrison, not Roth, has had anything close to his influence on American fiction. You see his fingerprints on the most diverse set of authors, from Jonathan Franzen to Rachel Kushner to Jennifer Egan to Adam Johnson to Colson Whitehead to Deborah Eisenberg. Any time a writer in the last few years has addressed mass culture or irony or late capitalism, DeLillo has been lurking. End quote. Donald Richard DeLillo, born in November of 1936, novelist extraordinaire, early acolyte of Joyce, Faulkner, Hemingway, and O'Connor, blasted into new consciousness by Bergman and Antonioni, Godard and Truffaut, Kubrick and Altman, Coppola and Scorsese, with a little Miles Davis thrown into the mix, for good measure, has thrilled and haunted discerning readers for years with novels like White Noise, Libra, Mautu, and Underworld. His themes? We live in dangerous times. What does that mean for us, and what does it mean for a writer? Writers, he said, must oppose things. It's their nature to oppose. To oppose, that is, whatever it is that power tries to impose. Don DeLillo. Today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. I buried the lead, my friends. I buried the lead. We have a special guest here today. Jesse Cavadlo, who is the president of the Don DeLillo Society. He's also a professor and the editor of a new book devoted to Don DeLillo and his writings. We'll have all that in a moment. But first, we have some news to share. Our old friend of the show, Nathan, has checked in with a special surprise announcement. He writes, Hi, Jack. It's the Dostoevsky fan from the smallest town in the smallest state. It's been a while since I wrote to you, Life has been busy. As you can tell from our past emails, I've been listening for a few years now, and I wanted to say thank you. I've recently been admitted into one of my dream PhD programs in comparative literature. Your podcast has helped me throughout these years discover new and interesting literature, and your devotion to literature and the podcast inspired me in my own love of literature. 
These past few years have been eventful, and it's always been a privilege to turn to your podcast when I needed stability in the midst of life's chaos. So I wanted to say thanks again. Keep up the great work, and I hope that you and your family are well. Best, Nathan. Nathan, thank you. Thank you very much. My family and I are well. Thank you. Excited to be a family of four once again this summer, all under one roof, at least for the next few months. At least I'm excited about that. I'm turning into the father in Calvin and Hobbes. Not something I ever felt that I was, but it seems like a good way to be a dad. I don't know how to do it better, even though I don't recognize myself in that figure, in that person. I'm not the guy who wants to jump on the bike and ride through the rain or insist on dragging the family to to agonizing camping trips in horrendous weather. That's not me. But when you are on that bike and it is raining and you're not just, you, you're not alone. That's the trick. That's the trick. When it's just me and it starts raining, I curse the gods for visiting this horror upon me. I decide I'm going to, to junk my bike to teach it a lesson, take it out in the backyard and shoot it, maybe bury it, take it apart and bury it under the basement subfloor. I tell myself that it's my own stupid fault for getting on this bike in the first, for even owning a bike. What was I thinking? Why did I buy this stupid bike in a world where it rains? Rain was inevitable. That's if I'm alone. That's how I, that's what I let myself think. If it's just me and my wife, then the two of us do the same. We think the same angry and disgusted thoughts. We poison the the waves of mental telepathy with our shared commiseration. A bike. That's what we're thinking together. How freaking stupid were we? It's wet out here. It's unpleasant. It's a testimony to our being dumb and naive and, and optimistic. We are getting what we bargained for. Soaked. Soaked in the head. Good. We deserve it, you and me. All this she and I exchange with a glance because we've been together a long time and that's what we think without saying a word. Well, at least <laughs> at least that's what I think we're thinking. LOL, maybe. <laughs> I guess I could, don't really know. No, I do know. I'm sure that's what she's thinking. I know her people. She is at least as screwed up as I am. But when it's boys... When the boys are out there, formidable young boys, my two beloved teenage boys, and I'm trying to finish the job of raising them and setting a good example and all of that. And I want those those beautiful brains of theirs to see glimpses of joy where others see only muck and misery. And it starts to rain and we happen to be out there on those bikes. I shift all of my personal misery to the side and dad mode kicks in. Calvin's Calvin's dad mode. That's the dad mode. The dad mode, as exemplified by Calvin's dad, isn't this wonderful, boys? It's raining. Oh, the skies have visited us with this glorious gift of rinsing liquid. Feels great to keep your muscles going, doesn't it? I love the rain. Soak it up, soil. 
Drink deep, you lucky blades of grass. You'll be glowing with peak green fervor soon enough. Look at the world in the rain, boys. Look at how soft its edges have become, how the colors melt against the soft, fresh air. What have we done to deserve this miracle? We've done nothing. We're alive, and that's enough. It's a golden ticket to paradise, and we have it each and every day. Thank you, sky. Thank you, beautiful cloud. Thank you, glorious, wonderful rain. Like I said, this isn't me. Not really, not deep down. It's not who I am or what I am. But it's how I am. And maybe there's not much difference. So I got off track. The point here is to congratulate Nathan with a dream PhD program in comparative literature in the works. That sounds wonderful. Good luck to you, Nathan, on your journey. And may your path ahead be full of sunshine. And in days of rain, as your head grows heavy with suffering, like a pound cake after a domestic flood, may you bring at least a few ounces of Calvin's dad into your psyche to leaven the sad and sodden mix. Hmm. I love hearing these listener emails. Makes me glad I'm doing this show. Glad and proud. Do send me your news if you have it. I love to hear it. Speaking of which, let's get to this show. <laughs> Were we speaking of show? <laughs> I got a little ahead of my... I got a, I threw in a few cent extra sentences and I lost my thread of transition. I'm glad I'm doing this show. Speaking of which, let's get to this show. So, as you may recall, we just did recently a two-part episode on the Henry James story, The Figure in the Carpet. Amazing story in which a reviewer is attempting to find the pattern that he believes unites a novelist's works. The entire body of work. He has come to believe that there's something deeper within that author's oeuvre. Something that a book-by-book -book appraisal might miss. I had that story and that idea very prominent in my mind as we put together that episode. And lo and behold, as I was immersed in that concept, trying to puzzle through that notion, I read these sentences at the start of Jesse Cavadlo's book on Don DeLillo. Quote, Don DeLillo is one of the most important novelists of the late 20th and early 21st century. Yet despite DeLillo's prolific output and scholarly recognition, much of the attention has gone to his works individually rather than collectively or thematically. End quote. So there we go, dear listener. The game is afoot. We are speaking with an expert in Don DeLillo, but there's something else at stake here. We are on the trail of a figure in the carpet. Jesse Cavadlo, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Jesse Cavadlo, a professor of English and Humanities and the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Maryville University of St. Louis. He's also the current president of the Don DeLillo Society. He's here today to discuss his new book, Don DeLillo in Context. Jesse Cavadlo, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So when did your interest in Don DeLillo arise? Uh, it was... September 1995. Mm. I was 23 years old. I was in the first semester of my PhD program at Fordham University. I can't honestly remember why I started reading White Noise, but I picked it up. It wasn't related to a course or a class or anything like that. And I instantly fell in love with the writing. And I couldn't believe that it felt so much like it was written just for me, even though at that time I didn't realize some of the connections that I might have with Don DeLillo, you know, for one, that I was in the Bronx going to school at Fordham University, uh, which Delulu had graduated from a couple of decades earlier. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. And from there, I just uh, kept kept reading. And uh, eventually, when I got to that point in my uh, doctoral studies, I decided to write my dissertation on Delulu. Right. And Delulu, 1995, September, uh, when did Underworld come out? Yeah, so this is pre-Underworld. At that time, there was very little scholarship on DeLillo. There was one book by the writer and uh, scholar Tom LeClaire. But other than that, he was still something like a cult writer, cult figure, kind of a cool writer. Uh, and so I was interested in uh, what, what could I do with, with this writer? Because at, at that point, uh, yeah, Underworld was not yet published. And uh, there was the beginning of some academic interest in him, but it really hadn't solidified, wouldn't solidify for probably about another decade. Right. So you said you immediately went to the language. Is that what drew you to him in particular? I'm guessing a combination of, of language and themes, probably. It, yeah, it was probably the language first. I mean, thematically, mm-hmm. white noise, which I think a lot of people are now familiar with because of the Adam Driver Netflix adaptation that came out in December of this last year. The themes are cultural, relevant, powerful. They they hold on. It is a campus novel, and I was, you know, at that point, very interested in right, pursuing an academic right. career. Yeah. But it really was the it really was the language and the humor that every line I felt like I wanted to read out loud to somebody. <laughs> wasn't even sure who, but everybody <laughs> needed to hear this. And it was very funny, but not necessarily in a should I laugh out loud at this? Should I even feel bad for thinking this is funny way? Yeah. 
Were you reading other 20th century authors? Was that the the field you were planning to go into? Or were you in the world of Chaucer or Shakespeare or something like that? (laughs) I do actually love Chaucer. Uh, I wanted to find out if I could uh, maybe specialize in medieval, but only Chaucer, not anybody else. And the answer (laughs) to that is definitely no. Um, The field that I was thinking I was probably going to go into was American modernism. And the writer Mm. that I was most interested in, who had already written a master's thesis on, was Nathaniel West, Mm. who's not Mm -hmm. particularly widely known. He wrote, uh, mainly is known for Miss Lonely Hearts and another short novel, The Day of the Locust. And I had a similar feeling when I read West, that this is so funny and such pitch perfect black comedy but is it okay to even laugh at this because it's it's really awful in a lot of ways west was also very interested in the media of his day and something like satirizing the media and he also had these interesting themes of again playing around with language almost like a kind of pre-postmodernist if i can put too many prefixes together on a word uh in a way that i i did feel like i recognized that right away in delillo and it spoke to me in a similar way but even more so Right, right. Well, that's interesting. I've never drawn a line between the two of them, but I think you're right. There is a kind of shared sensibility. I I don't know if Don DeLillo has ever given us sort of his reading list or anything, but my guess is he probably would have enjoyed uh, Nathaniel West, or he, he did enjoy him. As far as I know, he hasn't ever mentioned Nathaniel West. He tends to bring up modernists, but more like uh, James Joyce as opposed to Mm. Nathaniel West. Uh, West died very young also, as opposed to DeLillo, who has had a very long and prolific career. So I'm I'm very glad that there's this very nice body of work that's even continuing. Yeah. So much of DeLillo's, the praise of DeLillo, and I was getting this from going through the book that you had edited, uh, Mm -hmm. Don DeLillo in Context, is from whether it's critics or especially fellow writers, it seems to revolve around his prose style. And I was wondering if you have a favorite passage or an exemplary passage from his books that you could share with us to give us a, a flavor of what it is about his prose that draws you to it. Well, one passage that is not that often talked about that I really love is from one of DeLillo's earlier novels, Great Jones Street. Uh, And it's a fairly short passage, so I can read it in its entirety. Uh, It goes like this. A telephone that's disconnected, deprived of its sources, becomes in time an intriguing piece of sculpture. The business normally transacted is more than numbed within the phone's limp ganglia. It is made eternally irrelevant. Beyond the reach of shrill necessities, the dead phone disinters another source of power. The fact that it will not speak, although made to speak, made for no other reason, enables us to see it in a new way, as an object rather than an instrument, an object possessing a kind of historical mystery. The phone has made a descent into total dumbness, and so becomes beautiful. Mm. So he has a lot of passages like that. It doesn't seem to have that much to do with the book, which is ostensibly about a rock star. But the more you look into it, it really is this intersection of so many of DeLillo's themes, technology, such as it was in the early 1970s, communication, the difficulty of communication, the status or the function of art, or maybe even the lack of function. And it winds up being this representation of the main character who is also struggling with this kind of descent into dumbness. Uh, DeLillo writes a lot about phones, as it turns out, which I think is really interesting as well. In terms of other passages, Again, one could quote just about anything from White Noise, and it's immediately quotable. And I've read White Noise probably more than any other book at this point. And I'm surprised each time 
that different passages jump out at me. But one of the passages that I think really stands out is just that first paragraph, which in some ways is a nice way of thinking about DeLillo in context, but also DeLillo you know, in the text in and of itself. So the opening to White Noise begins with this image. The station wagons arrived at noon, a long shining light that coursed through the West Campus. In single file, they eased around the orange I-beam sculpture and moved toward the dormitories. The roofs of the station wagons were loaded down with carefully secured suitcases full of light and heavy clothing, with boxes of blankets, boots, and shoes, stationery and books, sheets, pillows, quilts, with rolled-up rugs and sleeping bags, with bicycles, skis, rucksacks, English and Western saddles, inflated rafts. As cars slowed to a crawl and stopped, students sprang out and raced to the rear doors to begin removing the objects inside, the stereo sets, radios, personal computers small refrigerators and table ranges, the cartons of phonograph records and cassettes, the hair dryers and styling irons, the tennis rackets, soccer balls, hockey and lacrosse sticks, bows and arrows, the controlled substances, the birth control pills and devices, the junk food still in shopping bags, onion and garlic chips, nacho thins, peanut cream patties, waffles and kabooms, fruit chews and toffee popcorn, the dum-dums, the mystic mints. Mm. So in, in this opening, it has a lot of what some critics have derided as Kmart realism, you know, names of brand name items, lots of lists of things. But to me, the interesting thing is what we later discover, which is the point of view that this is taking from. Who is this character who's narrating in this way? Who is this narrator who sees the world in this way, who makes lists of things but doesn't really quite notice the people who are involved? And then the book takes great pains to answer that question. Right. It is a, a kind of poetry. I mean, it has the musicality, it has the, the vividness and, and the descriptive power. But a lot of times when we admire someone's prose style, you know, we imagine them describing the sunset or the, the grassy field or some kind of beautiful thing. And instead, both of the passages you read are, it's it's like a poetry, but told by a storyteller and a modern storyteller as well someone who is is hip who understands technology who understands kind of the crunch of living in today's world rather than somebody who is out there setting out to describe how beautiful the world is but instead it seems like he's setting out to describe how actual it is or how realistic it is from the point of view of a particular observer I think that's a great point. He even does in White Noise go into describing sunsets. And the interesting thing is that they're described as ominous <laughs> as opposed to the other things that might genuinely be ominous. Uh, I mean, one of the words that, that I've used that other people have used that is associated with, with Deleuze's writing is the word numinous, you know, this idea that he's seeing something mystical or spiritual in the mundane and in the everyday life. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about him is really just what an observer he is of whatever thing he's writing about. And even back to what you were saying before, uh, the rhythms and the sounds of those words, that mm. he is a uh, inveterate rewriter and he uses a typewriter and he retypes the pages again and again. And one of the things that he's discussed is how interested he is, how concerned he is about the way the words look on the page. And he'll rewrite a description or a page because he doesn't like the way the words look. Mm. Uh, and, and again, so the, the, the prose, I think, appeals to the ear very much, but it also appeals to the eye in an interesting way that I think a lot of other writers aren't quite thinking about. 
I didn't know all that in 1995. I just knew I was pulled right in as soon as I started reading this. Yeah. I mean, another person and maybe a really good comparison is John Updike, who is sort of famous for his prose and is also often said he doesn't have anything to say and nobody says it better. But <laughs> not to, I mean, I like John Updike, so I don't want to criticize him too much. But but there's something about DeLillo that's more menacing. There's something more troubling. He seems to reckon with that sense of danger of the life we're living and what we're doing to ourselves. And I've got a quote here from Joshua Ferris, who says, DeLillo is, quote, the seeker, the prophet, the mystic, the guide. If it were just the prose, which again, I think is just about the best prose that any contemporary writer is is writing. If it were just the prose, that would be enough, but I don't think it would have been enough to something like cement or solidify DeLillo's just titanic reputation as a writer. I think mm-hmm. what Ferris is onto that I think becomes clear, you know, the more you reread DeLillo, the more people make connections between him and various contexts and aspects of the culture is the way he sees the world. And it's not just the way he describes it, but something like the inveterate wisdom. And that's one of the things that really jumps out at me about a lot of the great writers. You know, I'll, I'll put Nathaniel West in that category, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Toni Morrison, the way in which it's not just the style and the writing, although of course it is, it's also what they see and what they're able to describe and that they choose not to write cultural criticism, nothing wrong with that. (laughs) That's basically what I do. Uh, Sociology, philosophy, they do this in the form of fiction. And I think that's what's really remarkable about DeLillo. And one of the things that also drew me to him or maybe kept me there once the prose drew me in, and one of the reasons I was interested in this DeLillo in Context project is that it seems like almost no matter what angle one takes with DeLillo, that seems like the most important one. So yes, what does DeLillo have to say in this prescient or prophetic way about the culture kind of keeps getting back to that every time DeLillo shows up in the news. It's like, how did he know that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's separate from the prose, but it is something like the, the way in which he is able to understand, interface with everything around him. It's remarkable. And again, depending on how one looks at this, we can see aspects of politics or history, conspiracy, philosophy, even stuff like race, class, and gender, which isn't usually the way the lens that people look at DeLillo his relationship with writers before him, the way he influenced writers after him. Whichever thing you're looking at, that feels like the most important one at the moment. Yeah, right. I wanted to ask a question. This is sort of a parenthetical question, but I'm not sure I've ever talked to a member of a society where the subject is still living. And I'm wondering if Don DeLillo has been involved with the Don DeLillo Society. DeLillo is not involved with the DeLillo Society. I suspect he knows that. We exist. (laughs) I did meet DeLillo one time, and uh, before DeLillo in Context, uh, I wrote a previous academic book, a monograph called Don DeLillo, Balance at the Edge of Belief, and I gave him a copy, and he seemed very flattered, which was nice of him either to be or to pretend to be. I'll take (laughs) either one. He does have a line in one of his novels, Now Too, which is one of his 1990s novels, and it's about a writer who has this, you know, big following. And uh, I I feel like after a lot of novels, that was the first time he was able to sort of sneak in what other writers do much earlier in their career, which is write a novel about a novel or write a novel about a writer. And he does have this very funny line about how the kind of curator of his work collects shelves of both his work and work about his work. And I thought that was a very funny way of thinking about 
literary criticism. Uh, that's actually the title and the, the bibliography at the end of DeLillo and Context that I use rather than, you know, critical responses. I, you know, write the uh, work about his work. Um, so he is aware, I think, of literary criticism, not the DeLillo Society itself. When I discuss the Don DeLillo Society with anybody outside of you know, academic and literary circles, I have to reassure them that this is a thing that actually exists and that there are multiple author societies. <laughs> uh, I do fairly frequently get email addressed to Don DeLillo in part because he himself doesn't have a public email address. And I always have to sheepishly reply that this is the Don DeLillo Society oh, <laughs> as opposed right, to right. Don DeLillo himself. You know, we, we are a, a group of academics and uh, readers who want to promote his work and work about his work. So I'm pretty sure that's disappointing. My favorite correspondence from somebody who wanted to be in touch with DeLillo was because he had a screenplay for a sequel to the movie Underworld, which if you're familiar with, has nothing to do with DeLillo's novel Underworld. It's about the vampire and werewolf war. And he <laughs> kept writing to me that he got the screenplay for the sequel to Underworld. I've, I've got to get it into production. And I kept explaining, I'm not Don DeLillo. I can't get a screenplay into production. And that also doesn't have anything to do with Don DeLillo. And he's like, I'm just, I've run out of options for this. Like, oh, okay. This, this, this exchange went on for a surprisingly long time. Right. So as someone in the Don DeLillo Society, it, we'll get to your book in a minute here. But I'm just wondering in general, if the books that have been the most famous with the public are also the ones that scholars have found the richest. And and I would say, I think the, the stretch he had with White Noise, Libra, Mao Tu, and Underworld, I'm guessing you would agree that those are sort of the, the four that he's most famous for. But I'm wondering, are there any works that came before that? White Noise was, I think, his eighth novel. Are there any of the earlier works or any of the subsequent ones that have really resonated with the people that you work with at the Society? Uh, I would agree with you. In fact, again, my my book about DeLillo uh, did focus exclusively on those four novels that you just named. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I have to agree. I would say, though, that one of the you know other ones that I think scholars probably appreciate more than the general readership is the one that came just before, White Noise, The Names. A lot of scholars are very interested in what he's doing in The Names, especially with language. And then again, also kind of playing around with genre the way he tended to in a lot of his earlier works as well, uh, where it's something like an American abroad and something like, uh, you know, a thriller, but really uh, has this very interesting kind of analysis focused on language from outside of the U.S. So I think that's sort of a uh, scholarly favorite. Uh, the deepest cut is probably his science fiction novel, Ratner's Star, which mm. there's not that much written about, but it is a very interesting novel to me, mainly because it is definitely a work of science fiction, but it is also something like bordering on a parody of science fiction. And then the deepest cut is uh, Amazon's, which DeLillo has disavowed. Yeah, he wrote that right. under a pseudonym, apparently had a collaborator on that. Uh, he may have even just written that to kind of make some quick money. And it is a fictitious memoir of the first professional female hockey player. It is an alarmingly funny novel, but in some ways hasn't aged as well because there's a lot of, I guess, potentially sexist humor in it. But it's a funny novel that allows uh, DeLillo to cut loose and maybe is notable for the introduction of uh, Marie J. Siskind, who shows up in White Noise later. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and that was from, was it even the 70s? 
Yeah, that was in the 70s. So the 70s novels are in some ways a little looser than those other later novels, even though I love them very much, uh, because in some ways he kind of had one foot in a particular genre, but then also took a wrecking ball to it. So his first novel, Americana, is almost a Bildungsroman, almost a portrait of the artist as a young man, except about film rather than writing. But it also has such far out themes. I even discovered recently that that was a fairly early target of library censorship, which I hadn't realized before the kind of current spate of attempted library censorship started running through a lot of the state legislatures. His second novel I mentioned before, Great Jones Street, about a rock star. So almost making fun of kind of the rock culture fairly early on. I mean, he was really basing this almost entirely primarily on Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, but it was still fairly early on in the cultural matrix for that. He had a sports novel, End Zone, with the clever conceit of football is like nuclear war. He had a couple of different, again, kind of thriller-ish novels. He was, again, very, in some ways, playful in a way that the later novels do get less playful and that the most recent novels seem to be the least playful. They, they feel ice cold, very serious. Mm, right. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then come back with Don DeLillo in context. Okay, we're back with Jesse Cavadlo. Jesse, what approach do you take in your book? What does it mean to put Don DeLillo in context? Um, I started out as a reader and maybe as a writer, as a budding literary critic, as really one of the, you know, don't look outside the text kind of people. It's all between the covers. Don't worry about anything else. And the more I read and wrote, but especially the more I taught, you know, I'm at Maryville University, which is a primarily undergraduate teaching institution. It's not a research one. I teach a lot of classes. I do a lot of the professional development. And I found in working with my students that bringing in more and more context was actually really good for them and mm. really helpful. And that the, in some ways, more 20th century approach, you know, it's funny for me to use that as a frame of reference <laughs> of there's nothing outside of the text, wasn't really serving them as well as this broader approach to context. So even as far back as when I was working on my book, The Don DeLillo Balance at the Edge of Belief, it was primarily, in some ways for me, an exercise in close reading. That was the thing I really wanted to do. But it needed to have this angle of you know something like where, how, and why is it relevant that this undercurrent of spirituality runs through DeLillo's work. And that was primarily in contrast to what was emerging as the scholarship of DeLillo that focused primarily on DeLillo as a postmodernist. And I wanted to try to work against that a little bit. I thought I was done with DeLillo having actually published a book, but then I found myself continuing to publish articles. I published a subsequent book that was supposed to be about literature and pop culture after September 11, 2001. But of course, that had to mean writing about 
DeLillo, since he took on you know that subject fairly explicitly in one novel and implicitly in a second novel. Falling Man is explicitly a kind of 9-11 novel, but Cosmopolis is kind of implicitly a 9-11 novel. So I needed to write about both of those. Then after that, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm done with DeLillo. I've got one book and two book chapters and a you know handful of journal articles. And then Cambridge actually approached me to do this DeLillo in context as part of their literature in context series. And I thought, okay, this is to me a whole other way of approaching this, that mm. it's not even the, the single thesis. It's not the single lens. It's not just the close reading, although there is plenty of good close reading in the book. It's sort of, you know, taking this multiple layer approach. And it was really interesting to me in coming up with the chapters, the table of contents, the direction that this might go in, in that it allowed me to something like assign to other writers what in some ways were my own gaps and understanding mm-hmm. of DeLillo. The, the main one really being the, the places section, which I wound up in the final version of the book putting as the very first section. Uh, that we've got articles about Don DeLillo in New York City, Don DeLillo specifically in the Bronx, Don DeLillo in the American Southwest, which is where he set a number of his novels, and Don DeLillo and the World, which is, again, both the names and some of his other novels take place outside of the United States. And those were really interesting for me because I understood that they were important and I did put the table of contents together and assign the chapters to those writers. But I was really pleased as I read them that it definitely deepened my understanding of what DeLillo was doing to see these other academics take this deep dive into how do we understand the role of place in these novels. Right. And so for the listeners, uh, the other topics you have in addition to places or geography, history and politics, media and pop culture, literary contexts, material contexts, social and cultural constructions, and writing and writers. And so were all of those ideas that you had and then you knew of writers or you located writers who you thought would be good at writing individual essays that would fit into that? Or were you taking submissions or did writers send you things and then you formed the topics out of that? No, I started with all these topics. Like Cambridge uh-huh. wanted a very, very lengthy and very detailed proposal and table of contents <laughs> to make this thing work. Uh, so I had, I had come up with the titles and I did handpick and assign each of these chapters to a very particular person who I either knew I mean, there's not a ton of perks to being the Dundalola Society president, but one of them is that in organizing a lot of conference panels over the last number of years, that was where I kind of put out these calls for papers for, you know, I'm doing a panel on such and such a topic, send your proposals. And a pretty good number of the people who wound up in this book are people who I've met through the process of putting panels together for conferences. So I, I already knew that they were good for this topic. And a number of others had already written on that topic or on an adjacent topic. So I knew that this would be something that they would be able to uh, work up with a lot of enthusiasm. So it's, it's a good mix of uh, scholars who were well vetted in the topic, but not necessarily Don DeLillo or the opposite, you know, already deep into Don DeLillo. And I was able to nudge them into a, uh, into a particular topic, but you know, all the chapters were, you know, kind of planned and everybody assigned to the chapter was for me exactly the right person to write it. Mm. So was it sort of like, you know, I've heard this about film directors, that there are certain directors like Alfred Hitchcock who has in mind exactly what he wants the actor to do, and then he's just hoping to get the actor to do it. And then there are others who go into it thinking, well, I've got these professionals and I can't wait to see what they do with this. And I like to be surprised and I want to give them that sort of 
freedom. Were you on one side or the other in terms of the essays as they came in? Did you think, yes, this is exactly what I was hoping for? You know, I made a good choice and so and so executed perfectly to my vision. Or was it, I really can't wait to see what so and so is going to do with this. I think I've gave him or her a, an interesting prompt. Can't wait to see the finished product. I mean, at the risk of sounding ridiculous and paradoxical, it was completely both of those things. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I very much wanted the chapter. I was able to see that the chapter was very much what I had in mind because I did have a topic and I wrote kind of a starter paragraph mm-hmm. for each one of these, which I did not expect people to keep just so that they had some idea of what was going on. Right. Uh, but then I was consistently very pleasantly surprised as the essays came in that many of them had their own style, their own structure, their own direction. Just one example, uh, the chapter about the Bronx, you know, Don DeLillo's Underworld's Mystery and Manners, who's written by Jacqueline Zubek, who very sadly passed away before she was able to see this. And Mm. right as it was coming out, she took a really interesting approach in terms of the organization and the way that she looked at it. And one of the reasons I knew she would be able to do that, even though I didn't quite know what the result was going to be, is because she lives in the Bronx and she teaches in the Bronx. And I knew that she would be acquainted with the Bronx in a way that's very different from somebody who would just really do the kind of research on it. I was also very interested, again, in certain directions that people took. One of the to me, challenging sections was that literary context section, because I felt like that had been done the most previously. There was a lot about DeLillo and modernism, DeLillo and postmodernism. And so in trying to figure out the best way to do that, the writer Samuel Chase Cole wrote about modernism and postmodernism, and he was able to do this in this really almost quirky for an academic essay way that acknowledged that this is a reasonably well-trodden topic, but he was able to really make it his. And similarly, the chapter that I was originally thinking was going to be primarily about postmodernism, uh, the academic Katie Muth turned this into a postmodernism and literary criticism and the limits of postmodern uh, reading of DeLillo in a way that I thought was very helpful because if people want to read about DeLillo and postmodernism, there's no shortage of previously published work. But this really took postmodernism rather than as a literary genre or a philosophy as a context. And I was really pleased that the writers were able to do those things. Right. So you say at one point that a better title for the book might be Don DeLillo in Contexts, uh, plural. And I, I mean, I guess you could, to some extent, that might be true for every author in the series. But is it especially true for DeLillo? I agree. You could probably say that about (laughs) every author in the series. Uh, That being said, again, when I think about DeLillo as a writer, if you take, again, something like the the section, uh, the second section on history and politics, if we think of DeLillo and the Cold War, it seems like, well, yes, definitely. That's the way of understanding Mm -hmm. his work. Mm -hmm. He's very explicit in his Cold War framework, especially in Underworld, this, you know, 800 plus kind of opus. But then He also is very explicit about the Kennedy assassination, you know, in Mm. Libra, which is this kind of fictionalized version of the assassination. He writes explicitly about terrorism. He writes explicitly about the future and time and something like the, the state of the world. So it's like, okay, history and politics, that's definitely the best way of understanding this. And then you get to another section and, you know, there's Grayley Heron writing about religion and spirituality. Like, no, 
that's the best way of doing this. And then you get to some of the other chapters near the end, Hal Bush writing about the writing process, Aaron DeRosa writing about advertising and copywriting, which was DeLillo's day job before he decided to try to stake it out as a novelist. You know, like, ooh, this is the key. This is the way of understanding it. Again, from working a lot with undergraduates, they're often looking for the way in, the key to understanding something. And one of the things that fascinates me about DeLillo and context is that if you're looking at any one of those, that feels like the key until you get to the next one. And then that one's the key. Mm. In other words, he's really, he's capable of writing these works that are so fertile, so lend themselves to these various and in-depth analyses, with in some ways the two biggest ones being two that had previous books written about them by two of the contributors to DeLillo and Context. Mark Osteen wrote a whole book about DeLillo's conversation with culture, something like, again, the big thematic approach. And David Cowart wrote a whole book about DeLillo's relationship to language. Not quite the close reading approach only because he also has a lot of you know, philosophy of language, theory of language. These two books came out around the same time. And to me, they were both just about the best works of literary criticism to come out that year. And they were both about Don DeLillo. Mm. Like, what is it about this writer <laughs> that just <laughs> lends itself so much to thinking about, writing about, teaching about? I've, I've taught a number of his novels. I try to teach White Noise about every two years in a class. Not all the students love it, even though they should. Not all the students get it, which is sort of understandable. But there's no end to the conversation that we can have about what he's doing in this book. And that, to me, is one of the hallmarks of a very teachable book. Right. Well, what is he doing? And let me frame the question this way. It used to be common to say that the nightmare scenario of George Orwell's 1984 didn't happen because Orwell had himself alerted us to the danger. And I guess arguably that might have been premature when people when people were saying that, but let's set that aside. So I'm wondering, have DeLillo's works provided those sorts of alarm bells that society and the culture have heeded because he pointed them out? Or do you see him more like a Kafka who delineated the spiritual crisis that we're all going through and has kind of pointed out like we're the proverbial frogs being boiled one degree at a time? And he's not necessarily shocking us into change, but his works surprise us or resonate with us because he's pointing out how hot and bubbly the water around us has actually become. I do think I agree that he's very tuned in to the culture, so tuned in that at times what he does borders on prophecy, on prescience, that he started writing his last short novel, The Silence, kind of in the run-up to COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what happened there, but you know, he published this very short novel that appears to be absolutely 100% about the kind of COVID crisis and what that did to society. And yet he insisted that it was not about COVID. He started writing it before COVID. It came out a little too early in the COVID crisis to even have been influenced by it, unless he was a very, very fast writer, so much so that as one anecdote as revealed in an interview with the New York Times around when the silence came out, in the early galley copies, which I have a copy of, of the silence, there is a reference to COVID-19 that apparently DeLillo says he did not even put in there. That was some overzealous copy editor who yeah. felt like uh, it needed to be explicit in the text as opposed to only something like implicit in the text. And DeLillo took it out. So, you know, anybody who's got a uh, galley copy uh, gets to have this rare version where COVID-19 is explicitly mentioned. That anecdote is in many ways an interesting one because it helps us to understand how valuable the context 
is, you know, in some ways, Delillo writing about you know, the end of technology, this kind of sci-fi premise that he does not see through in the silence is this interesting way of trying to get a handle on this time, this thing that happened that was so difficult for everybody to get a handle on. And yet he also wants it to stand entirely outside of that, that it needs to work both in context and out of context, that it absolutely does work as this kind of almost like a play, uh, almost like this Beckett-esque, Pinter-esque, absurdist play, except the absurdity is the thing that's really happening. So in that sense, it's really remarkable. More recently, after the Delillo in Context book came out, the White Noise movie came out. And then fairly shortly after that, there was, in fact, a train derailment in Ohio. And there was a, a CNN story that quoted me about this. And the thing that was really astonishing to people was not just the train derailed and there was a very bad chemical spill and people needed to be evacuated, which is exactly what happens in the middle section of White Noise, but that the film had been filmed in a nearby town and that many of the people who evacuated were extras who evacuated in the movie. And they said, we can't believe that we're doing this in real life. We just did this as extras in this movie. And that led to any number of I want to say all sorts of conspiracy theories, and that led to more more mail for me. I got lots of email. How does Delillo know? How did he predict this? How did he? How could he possibly see this coming? And I had to, you know, I actually wrote back to everybody. Take everybody's mail very seriously. This book was published in 1985. <laughs> there had been previous chemical spills before that. Uh, the quote in CNN talked about that we get into this sort of very strange relationship between you know art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life, and the way in which what Delillo is really talking about is kind of the, our over familiarity with this mediated experience. And then that quote was pulled into all sorts of conspiracy subreddits because I referred to this bill as a coincidence. And so that to me was very interesting, the way in which this thing happened. And it seems so obviously connected to Delillo, these straight arrows, these articles that people wrote on the internet that were the eerie similarities between what happened in Ohio and what happened in White Noise. And yet it's clearly not because DeLillo predicted it. It's because even in 1985, he was able to see what was happening in the culture so clearly then. And sometimes when you're really in tune with what's happening in the present, it starts to look a lot like you're able to see what's going to happen in the future. Mm. The author that reminds me of is Margaret Atwood who always rejects the label of science fiction. And she wants to draw the distinction between her works and what she called, I think, something like giant squids in outer space or something. <laughs> and and what she was saying right. is that when she writes something like Handmaid's Tale, that everything that she put in there is something that somewhere in society people were trying to do. She was taking laws that maybe hadn't quite passed, or she was taking speeches that leaders had given, or societies where things had been introduced, and was sort of saying, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm speculating as to what will happen if this comes to fruition. But it's not speculation to say that people are capable of this, or that there is something running through our society now that would lead to this if these forces are unleashed. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great parallel and example with DeLillo. Here are two writers who wrote these semi-dystopian novels in the 1980s and managed to live long enough to see everything they predicted come true, except that you're right, they weren't exactly predicting. They were aware of things that were already happening and able to work that in. I taught a class that included uh, Handmaid's Tale as well as Don DeLillo's Libra, again, because of this idea of something like 
paranoia and speculation, but also the way in which at the same time, they're not inaccurate ways of viewing the world. Yeah. Do you find with your students, I mean, for me to have come through the Cold War and to have the decades of the 20th century are so delineated for me, and it's easy for me to read a Don DeLillo and sort of say, okay, I can put the Bobby Thompson home run here, and I can I can put you know Watergate here, and I can put the JFK assassination in between those two, and it, it's all history that I either lived through or was just a generation ahead of me. But do you find with your students that they are helped by having this context of well, this is what the Cold War was really like? And this is people were worried about a nuclear holocaust here, and they were worried about government surveillance there and and that kind of thing. Or do they just take DeLillo and say, well, this still feels real, and I don't necessarily need the history to kind of understand it deeply because the feelings that are coming out of this are feelings that we still live with and, and resonate. I think this is the third time I've done this, but I, I would say it's both again. Like I, yeah. I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't either or anything. It's, yeah. We need to do both. That I want them to be able to make those connections, but for whatever reason, and I think it's from growing up with the internet, which turns sort of everything into a yes. genre. There's not quite any context to the internet other than it's the internet. Just as a side note, when I was first interested in DeLillo, I read this 1980s work of philosophy uh, by George W.S. Trow called In the Context of No Context. Yes. And this was pre-internet. He was already yep. in this DeLillo-esque way thinking about that You know, the, the technology creates its own context. I mean, probably influenced by Marshall McLuhan and the way in which the internet takes that and ratchets it up by like a million. So in a way for students, there there is no 1980s. There is no decade. These things are just all different, something like selections that you can scroll through on Netflix. Uh, I think music is very similar to them. The the 1980s is is a genre, not a time period, in a way that anybody who was alive in the 80s and listening to music, which is me and sounds like you, uh, you know, the the genres were actually very important. You could base your entire identity (laughs) on one of these things. Yeah. Which which station are you listening to? And it's the soundtrack to your lives, but it would be you could even divide it into, well, this was the summer of 1984, and this was the summer of 1986, and that's the music that mm-hmm. was on when these things were happening. But you're right, for for my sons, they can listen to the Beatles as easily as they can listen to Prince as easily as they listen mm-hmm. to anything contemporary. Right, and so the let's say the context of the Beatles is in many ways very important to understand what the Beatles music is. And I think we could say the same thing about DeLillo's novels, especially again, this idea of the cold war and certain ways that he approaches conspiracy. And then certain ways that he approaches, you know, the the Kennedy assassination or nine 11, he does have this real sense of time and history. I mean, he wound up writing a pretty amazing essay published in the New York times magazine about, I think it was called the power of history. He wrote an essay much earlier about the Kennedy assassination that kind of works nicely in conjunction with Libra. He wrote a really powerful essay very shortly after 9-11, you know, as DeLoe is a lifelong New Yorker. And so if students don't have that piece, I think that they are not just missing out on important levels or ways of understanding the book, but in some ways, you know, this is a college course. That's part of what college courses need to do (laughs) is Mm. give them this much broader way of thinking or understanding. I mean, this last semester in a course, I was teaching Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons graphic novel Watchmen. And at some point when we were discussing this, I realized that students did not, not a single student in the class realized that Richard Nixon, in fact, was not the president 
1985 when this is taking place. That's part of the speculative fiction of the thing is what mm. would have happened if like, okay, we need to stop and just, just do a quick mini lesson aside yeah, about who right. was president and when, and what's the significance in the science fiction of this, of having Nixon president in 85. And <sighs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, I figured, right. I mean, I'm usually pretty well prepared for students. And I've taught Watchmen before, but this was the first time we had to actually do a, we have to stop what we're talking about right now to talk about why it's so important that Alan Moore places Richard Nixon in the white house in 85. And that's yeah. what I really try to do. Although I kind of, didn't see that one, that particular one coming. That's what I try to do with, with my students. And that's one of the things that I think that the Lillo and Context book does really well is that we've got all of these different ways in and angles, and they all in, in and of themselves seem to have this different way of illuminating some aspect of the work, but also to me, just as importantly, the way that DeLillo illuminates those aspects of history. He does give us a different way of thinking about the Cold War, as opposed to just the Cold War helps us to understand DeLillo. Mm. Well, I would say that for anyone who's interested in Don DeLillo, whether they've read DeLillo before, whether they're a, a deep appreciator of DeLillo or whether they're brand new to him, reading that book, Don DeLillo in Context, is a great way to begin and to see where you want to go, uh, to see what you want to read first, because you can find the topics that interest you and the authors have such enthusiasm for the subject. It really is infectious and, and kind of makes me want to you know, load up my nightstand with DeLillo novels. But if you must get asked this question a lot, if someone is wondering where to begin, if they haven't read DeLillo or if, or if they haven't read him since the 80s and 90s, is there a book in particular that you like to put in people's hands? I mean, I still think that book is White Noise. It was yeah. the one that first got me interested in this. It's the one that, that being said, I have unbelievably experienced people who didn't love white noise. It's, it's shocking to me. That, <laughs> and so if somebody does start reading white noise and they feel like it's not for them, so many of DeLillo's novels are in fact so both thematically and stylistically different that I wouldn't say, okay, you didn't like white noise, then don't try anything else. I mm. would then say there are any number of other different directions potentially to go in. So Libra, you know, is the, the next novel chronologically, and it feels so different from white noise. So I would say if white noise didn't work, maybe try Libra and see what that does in terms of its understanding of perspective, voice, multiple narratives, history, the way in which he really tries to get inside of, you know, Lee Oswald in this way that I think is very interesting. And then if that still doesn't work, then go back to some of the really early novels, which I think are very funny in this absurdist humor kind of way. So again, great Jones Street end zone. Uh, and then if that still doesn't work, then the more recent novels tend to be very short and in mm. some ways very direct and thoughtful. And so one of the you know, 21st century novels is Cosmopolis, which was also adapted as a movie by David Cronenberg. When that first came out, it got some mixed reviews and even some of the DeLillo enthusiasts weren't sure what to do with it. But I think that book has aged extremely well. And when I picked it up again, after a couple of years, I was really delighted to see how funny it was, but again, in this very cold, deadpan way, and how it almost is like this kind of 21st century American Gothic, urban Gothic, in a way that I absolutely did not realize the first time reading through it. Okay, those are all some good choices, and I'll add to it the book Don DeLillo in Context, which is edited and with an introduction by our guest, Jesse Cavadlo. Jesse Cavadlo, thank you so much for joining us on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
Okay, there we go. My thanks to Jesse Cavadlo for joining me today. Don't you want to want to run out and read some Don DeLillo now? Well, be my guest. Or you can check out Don DeLillo in context to get you started. And my thanks to Calvin's dad, long-suffering Calvin's dad. I'll take the I'll take the Calvin's mom and the babysitter as my allies even as secretly in my heart of hearts. I really think I must be Calvin and or Hobbes. Not the, not the dad, but maybe that's just my runaway ego steering me wrong once again. My thanks and well wishes to Nathan as he embarks upon his PhD program. If you've been inspired by literature or, or by the podcast, do let me know. I would love to hear about it. And now... Ah, we arrive at the moment of sweet sorrow, where I say unto thee, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>